Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. We made it. The season finale. I never thought we'd get here. It's been remote. It's been weird. I'm Kenny Holmes. He's Robert Kraft in my screen there. I am Robert Kraft, and I am really amazed that we've made it, but also incredibly proud. I was thinking last night, I sometimes think at night, I don't want to shock you, that uh, this season has been remarkable. I've learned a lot from composers, from starting with Danny to bookending it with Howard Shore. It's been a remarkable season. Again, this is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. Thank you for joining us on our season finale episode with our guest today, three-time Oscar winner, Howard Shore. We have so much to get to with Howard, um, but I do want to introduce our intro guests, as always, Carol, composer Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Can we have a little applause for composer Carol, who's knocking it out of the park with her medleys, most recently the Blake Neely medley, which is insane. Aww. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And also joining us is Matt Schrader, coming off of a huge season of Blockbuster. Big congratulations on that. The season finale out last week. Thank you. Yeah, it just wrapped, and uh, all the feedback has been great. We made some people cry, (laughs) which is always the goal with any type of story. Get them to cry. So um, really, really fun season for us. And uh, now a week later, we get to wrap this show with uh, one of my favorite composers of all time, Howard Shore. This is such an awesome, awesome get. Yeah, you know, it's crazy to, I was actually talking to my dad the other day and telling him that we were talking with Howard Shore. And I was like, he's not a Lord of the Rings guy. So I'm like, let me look at his list and kind of show him who Howard Shore is. And I, it's just crazy to look at this list of films that he's done and the, the range, the, the different genres, the different styles of film. Like he never got put into one spot. He never got pigeonholed as we talk about. He goes from big to Mrs. Doubtfire, then into Martin Scorsese stuff with The Departed and Gangs of New York up to The Lord of the Rings. It's, it's almost astonishing that this same brain can do what he's done over his uh, career. In fact, I watched over the weekend Silence of the Lambs for the first time ever, actually. And what a different sound for that film than everything else I just mentioned. I mean, he's just got such, such range and he's also such a humble guy. So it's 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 pretty cool that uh, we're going to be able to talk with him. And we had him on the documentary and um, now we have him on the show. It's fun to think about doing a mashup of some of Howard's biggest hits, you know, be in the middle of Silence of the Lambs, that scary scene where Clarice has figured out she's all alone in the bad guy's house and she's in there and the lights are out. She's got her night vision on and it's utter peril. Then you have other characters from Howard's movies. You have Mrs. Doubtfire walk in at that moment. I think would be really fun to do, what? or maybe <laughs> hello. <laughs> That'd be great, or maybe Gandalf show up. He does Saturday Night Live. He does the theme for Conan O'Brien. There's just so much to talk about, so let's not waste time talking about it now. We'll get to Howard in just a bit. 
Um, we also have a couple score the mailboxes to get to mm. for uh, the finale here and some news to get to. But first, as always, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers, used by many of our guests right here on the show. And just a special shout out to Ben, Lauren, Paul, and Christian, and everyone at Spitfire for uh, supporting this show now for two seasons on. Uh, we, we can't thank them enough for... Uh, yeah, you guys are the best. For partnering up with us and... It's it's the best partnership for uh, our listeners too. I think it's mostly and the great thing is. Oh, sorry, I'm stepping on you a little bit. Go ahead, Matt. I was going to say the great thing is Spitfire has been so supportive of the guests that we're pursuing, and I don't know if everyone knows this, but you know, you Kenny and Robert are were and and uh, Carol as well are working so hard to book guests, and they don't just fall in place. They're not a thing where, you know, we make one call and someone says, all right, I'll do it. Although we've had a couple that are like that. But for the most part, it's, you know, we have to go figure out schedules and how we're going to make things work. Even when it's a Zoom call, you know, these are busy people that we're talking to. And uh, and I think now we're going on, what, 60 interviews or something like that yeah. for this this whole show. So really, really amazing stuff. Um, it, it's cool for me to see a first and people doing things that haven't haven't been done before. And it's been really exciting to see you guys pull off three seasons now of getting to um, the most brilliant, you know, musical minds in this business. So um, and Spitfire obviously making that possible the last two years here, the last two seasons. And Sp yeah. Spitfire is deservedly the top of this particular universe, because uh, as I found out over the weekend, Spitfire has something for everyone. I mean, if you're just starting out, you have the complete free range of top quality instruments called labs. And I downloaded some drums and some pianos. And then I spent too much time in the last couple of days with the new Discovery Edition of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, which it's 49 bucks, but I got mine for free by filling out a survey. And I waited a couple of weeks, but boy, was it worth it. I mean, the f are you, are you, you got restless leg syndrome going on over there. I got, I hear a lot of bouncing. Yeah, it's actually there. Um, I have a couple orcs from uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings They're in the room. I, I have to keep them. From you need to get the mic stabilization package from Spitfire Audio. Well, it's a full orc extra. So, oh, that, oh, I see where you got it. There. So, uh, listen, Kenny, you want to tell them about the great deal they get from Spitfire? <laughs> Yeah, 20% uh, off your first order with Spitfire products. And as this is the season finale, we need to make sure to use that promo code because we don't know how long it's going to last. They haven't told us if they're going to keep it on past uh, season three here. So if you haven't used it yet, it's SCORE2020, lowercase SCORE2020. You can use it on many of their collaboration packages with the likes of Hans Zimmer, Oliver Arnold's, the London Contemporary Orchestra. There's more than 50 libraries of those collaboration packages and different uh, sound samples uh, that you can use it on. So use it and let them know we sent you. Uh, shoot us a note. Tell us what you got. We'd like to hear what uh, you're using it for and send us some cues on our social media pages, uh, score the podcast. Uh, after the show today, we're going to play you a cue created using the London Contemporary Orchestra textures package, so you can hear some of those sounds. Wow, cool! Uh, so, Matt, you you touched on a little bit, but Blockbuster completed 
the the finale of that, I did get yeah. a little misty. I'm going to admit. Yeah, and you were in it. Well, I I only gave you a little info on what the season covered a little bit. You'd never read a script or anything. No. Hey, Robert, you may have read a couple pieces of scripts along the way, so. I know. Um but uh but yeah, it's uh it we had a, you know, extra uh extended length finale and uh we've been getting the nicest notes from people that really enjoyed the journey and um it was great because we started out about james cameron and uh not that many people have the same kind of fond impression of james cameron that they do for steven spielberg um understandably so they don't make the same type of films but um but we had a lot of people at the start that were like, I don't know about this. And then a lot of those people now messaging us saying this this season was great. So it's really fulfilling and, and great to hear for everyone that's been involved in making this. I think one of the best things about the show, though, if people haven't listened to it is, yeah, you may have heard some of these stories before, whether you have or haven't. When they come to life, like I would like to revisit any old story with with the way this is presented, because it really it's a game changing experience. You're not just reading James Cameron's crew was, you know, spiked with PCP or whatever. Like when it, when it comes to life like that and the way Peter designs that audio, it's so visual and it really Mm -hmm. sucks you in. And even if your eyes are open, I can picture everything that's happening in those episodes. So if you haven't listened to it yet, binge it now. It's the whole thing is out and both seasons are just fantastic. Hats off to your crew. And uh, I'm proud to be part of it, too. It's pretty cool, even for a small part, to be having a scene with uh, Ross Marquand from, from Walking Dead. Can I tell you something, Kenny? You saved the entire <laughs> podcast with that performance. I mean, it was kind of hanging in the balance. I like it. It's pretty good. But then when you appeared, I thought, over the top, we're in. Thank goodness Kenny was Thank here. Thank you yep. very much, you guys. A uh, couple <laughs> of headlines over the weekend. We had a busy Hollywood weekend for the first time in a long time. Uh, yeah. The Batman trailer released, which is getting all sorts of buzz, and it reveals that it's like an origin story of three villains. I think three villains, right? Penguin, Catwoman, and the Riddler, and also Batman. Um, so that opens up the door for all kinds of things. I don't think that there was any musical. There wasn't much from Jacino in the trailer. Am I wrong? I don't think because, any actually. Yeah. It, it was source music. It was the Nirvana song. They've, yeah, they've used the Nirvana right. song. They have resuscitated. And I read, they remixed a little bit and played with to make it fit the trailer, but it felt good. Yeah. It's going to be that, that thing's going to explode, especially with, just sort of the antsy non theatrical feeling we've all been having. Like when, when things get back to normal and that comes out into theaters that expect big things. And, and the trailer looks fantastic uh, directed by Matt Reeves. Uh, also this weekend, Ludwig Goranson's single with uh, Travis Scott for Tenet came out and it's at the top of the charts. It's a sick track. I think like everything Luke Ludwig does, it kind of, for me, redefined a new sort of cue slash rap slash hip-hop genre. I can't explain it, but it was somewhere between an action cue vibe with a rap over it 
And it's got a lot of energy. A incredible track. And so I can't think of another pop track that has that kind of oh, this could be in a movie. Well, this is a movie cue. But you got Travis Scott spitting well, rhymes. I just I think of it like this. You know, when when it was announced that Ludwig was doing it and everyone was like, Oh, not Hans, because Hans is busy and he usually works with Chris Nolan. I I can't imagine Hans doing this song with Travis Scott. So it's kind of like oh, a perfect cool. opportunity to capitalize on, right? I mean, you if you have the hottest hip hop producer in the biz scoring your film, why not go grab the biggest one of the biggest rap stars and and capitalize on that marketing? Yeah. Well, it's an awesome track. What else came out this weekend? Anything else getting your interest? Yeah, it was the Hans Zimmer uh, Wonder Woman cue. Right. Speaking of Hans Zimmer, yeah. Yeah, that was also, that one surprised me because. It was kind of beautiful. Yeah, I thought it was going to be all sort of tension and action vibe. Same. And then it I becomes. I clicked on it expecting like to get all fired up. Triumphant choir appears with triumphant chordal information saying, I think Wonder Woman's going to survive. I think Wonder Woman's going to save the day. And uh, it was just typically Hans Zimmer excellent and classy and fabulous. I loved it. Yeah, well, with the bottleneck of uh, theatrical stuff that is to come, there's going to be like an overwhelming experience of things just coming out left and right. So as we're all suffering and struggling and not being able to watch and, and see the things that we are expecting, there's going to be a point where it's going to be like, now I got to see this. Now I got to see this. Now I got to see this. Yeah. Now I got to see this. So yep. exciting things to come. Stay positive, everybody. All right. We have a couple messages from score the mailbox the the first one is actually a, a voice message from wayne o'donnell hi it's wayne here from sydney australia um i have a question about spotting when you are spotting a film uh how do you decide whether you're going to use a score um or underscore or um source music for the film and adding to that when you introduce a title song um is that to bring together the emotion or the thematics of the film or was it really a um a source for marketing and uh bringing the soundtrack itself to uh topping the charts thank you boy we just had the two best news items that kind of yeah. touch on this both uh ludwig and also hans yes. who are masters at this yes hans with uh the upcoming james bond film um, and then Ludwig, obviously, with Tenet. And I think that, Matt, you've just answered the question with uh, certainly the, the title portion of it, which is Wayne, first of all, hello, matey. And, um, <laughs> and secondly, um, you hope for both. I mean, what could be better than a chart-topping song that emotionally captures the film? And I think that you've also kind of unwittingly entered one of the biggest arguments that happens on a film, which is the studio wants to sell the movie. What can, where can they put the big single? And the director wants to set the right tone for his film. And um, often that argument takes place over the end title because you don't expect the intro to the film to be anything other than 
that's the director's province. You know, we're going to let you decide, do you want score there or a song? Which, again, to answer your spotting question, mostly director choices. Uh, it would be rare for a studio to come in and tell the director, you need to put a song in this scene. You know, the director decides. That's his landscape, how he wants to populate it. And he's driven by not only emotional function of it, but the budget parameters. Can he afford a U2 song in that spot? Or is he going with score? Because he's already paid for the composer. But it's the end title, which is often the most contentious area. Here the credits are going past, and the studio wants to stick the song by Stone Temple Pilots, or Little Nas X, or whoever is can you know, get on the charts at that Celine Dion, as we learned in right. Blockbuster. Yep. And if I can add to the composer, if it's an original song, the composer is oftentimes involved with the uh, with, with that song's creation, too. Yes. And even though they might not be on some other things that aren't, you know, that are in the end credits or something, if it's going to touch on some of the same musical themes or some of the, the motifs or, or, you know, kind of melodies that are part of the film, the composer is going to be involved probably in that process. Which is why I'm very excited for uh, Ludwig's score and Tenet, because if it sounds yep. something like that song, which I imagine it would if he produced it, um, I don't imagine him going completely off the wall with a, something with a song that doesn't relate to the score, but yep, it'll be interesting to see. And then you see other cases where like Post Malone does a song that just appears in the kid's bedroom in Spider-Verse, but it can have the same effect. I mean, that song was at the top of the charts forever. It didn't Pemberton say even people thought Post Malone scored into the Spider-Verse. That yes. song got so popular. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's a good it, question, dude creative decision and um it can reap rewards if you match the right artist to the right film that's for sure uh one other question which i found this interesting robert and you touch on this sometimes this is from lachlan also in australia oh he says obviously this comes up from time to time with temp tracking but more generally when the composer is writing is there any creating being constantly checked for issues of copyright of other songs. Basically what he's asking is who's double checking that this brilliant composer doesn't accidentally write the same group of notes for a new film that maybe was written in 1985 and he doesn't know that that same group, is there a, a checks and balances of like making sure that it's a new sound? He said, there's only so many, uh, groups of notes in our Western scales. So at some point you might run into that. And you mentioned oftentimes when you were with Fox that, Hey buddy, that's Thomas Newman. American beauty. We often, you got to redo it. Yeah. That's American beauty. Who's checking on. So that? I think you just answered the question, which is I am. <laughs> uh, and uh, Lachlan's another great question. Um, you kind of hope that there are people around you. And I've been in a situation where I've missed something and somebody else has pulled me aside to say, you know what this reminds me of. And I've gone quietly into another room to listen to a movie, a song. Um, it's a terrible situation to be in because it's very embarrassing for the composer. And I can tell you that I've had two reactions. Once I pulled the composer aside to say, man, that's really close to a Thomas Newman American Beauty cue. And it's particularly dangerous because he had to, we 
fess up to the fact that that was the temp, an actual cue from American Beauty, and he was trying to get as close as possible. And he looked at me with great concern and said, too close? Am I too close? I said, dude, you're, you're, you're just right on. The rose it. petals I mean, are falling on the on right. the stage right now. And and it's not only note-wise, Lachlan, sometimes in legal terms you have intent. Did you intend to copy a cue? And if you can show that the temp had that, well, so he went out on the stage. There was a full orchestra, and I had to call him in and say, this makes me nervous. And he had to go and rewrite the cue pretty substantially right there. I've also had a situation where I had to call a composer in with an orchestra on the stage and say, this melody is a Cole Porter song. I'm just absolutely, I'll sing it to you. And I sang him. That's why the lady is a tramp. <laughs> and he went, um, no, it isn't. I said, play back the cue. We played it back and it went, bah, 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 da, 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 bah, da. I mean, it was so on the money. And he got very, unfortunately, hostile that I was making too much of it, that he wanted to keep it. But I think it was just on disc, the discomfort of, I said, let's just change it. He said, it's in every cue. That's the theme of the movie. So let's just keep it. It was not a happy afternoon. I'll leave it at that. We changed it. He changed it. We haven't had a great relationship since. <laughs> so, but but basically what you're saying is like, people just have to, it, it's kind of all ears on deck. Like you just yep. got to watch out for the team. Yeah. And have somebody be brave enough to tell you something uncomfortable, which is, that's a little close to a song, a cue, another theme. And have you go, Really, man, I wasn't ripping him off. It was unintentional because that can happen. It was unintentional. And and that unintentional thing, there is – I forget what the legal I've, – I've been briefed on this before um, when we've had music cleared for different projects that I've been involved in. But there is a independent creation or something like that, some, some legal precedent that basically says you, even if you have the same seven notes that are part of the theme of something – it could you can't it doesn't mean you can't use it you could it could still be the you know john williams superman theme as long as it is created you know independently not off the work of somebody else that's always the most difficult thing to prove is you know what are the odds but there are odds you can come up with something that sounds just like something you know you once heard in a slightly different form or a slightly different um you know arrangement and uh and and you can use that it's just that you also open yourself up to the public reaction of people being like this is a ripoff of john williams score you know no one wants to be that composer well that's a great question lachlan and i hope that answers your question but it seems like it's just kind of crazy you just gotta kind of watch watch your teams back a little yeah. bit and it, it all falls on robert's shoulders Thank you. at the end of the day so uh, thank you so much for sending all these questions in over the season. Uh, keep them coming for back for season four. We'll, uh, we'll have a mailbox piled up with letters to get to. Um, so we appreciate you guys taking part in the show and we love helping to answer your questions. Score the mailbox at epicleft.com. Uh, we wanted to do a quick little thing here where we talk about uh, some of our favorite memories of the, the season. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm getting kind of emotional again. 
Sorry. Okay. Wiping the tears. Yes. Um, Matt, you've been on the outside looking in. What uh, What's memorable for you from this season? Uh, it's been such a great season. I mean, it started off with Danny Elfman, which is, you know, a huge get. I know it's Kenny's all-time favorite composer, and um, and he told so many of, uh, of his stories about, you know, Oingo Boingo, and even before that, and kind of how he came up in the film industry, all the way to Coachella, you know, being basically a pop star now in many ways for his film music, which is such, speaks to the time we live in, I think. Um, but, uh, but I mean, several other standouts. I mean, obviously, I already touched on this, but the scheduling that you guys do have to do in order to get any of these big guests is insane and you know i i see a lot of the the emails and the uh the notes and in our our messages that are going back and forth and um trying to arrange a time and trying to figure out and then someone says oh they can't do that date anyway you know sorry ludwig can't do that date tenant's been pushed you know how many times did we have to deal with that this last season we were thinking oh, Ludwig man. might be a great season finale but uh, but then, you know, things are shifting around and uh, it's being pushed. And here we are, the actual season finale and uh, and tenants not out yet. And um, so there's a lot of weird, you know, scheduling things that come with the whole coronavirus thing. But you guys have managed it so well. And the the silver lining of all this stuff is we got to go to London. We got to go to India, you know, remotely and talk with these people who um you know, previously it'd be very difficult to do, but instead we get to sit down with A.R. Rahman and, you know, have him tell us these stories about, you know, teaching himself to use his dad's musical equipment and uh, passing on a scholarship to Berkeley so that he could go score a film and, you know, this whole path to greatness. And by the way, A.R. Rahman has 23 million Twitter followers. Like, for comparison, I looked this up, Google only has 22. So this is a huge, huge uh, musical influence on the world. And uh, it's so cool to me that you guys were able to get guests like that um, on on this season that has had so many challenges. So many uh, other podcasts have had trouble doing that. But everything sounds amazing. You know, the each interview that you guys have been doing has been bringing such insight to the craft. So um, just Brilliant work from you guys all around. Insight to the craft. That's what I need. <laughs> the craftmeister. The craftmeister. We'll, we'll keep it going around the room. Carol, what's your favorite memory uh, of the season? It's been a great season. Getting emotional now. Um, I don't know if I can pick just one. I probably have one, one favorite story from every episode. Um, but I guess I'll go with the only episode this season we were able to record in person, which is the episode with the Parasite composer. Jung JL. Um, yeah, we were yeah. able to sit down with JL just before the lockdown started. And I, I think that might be the last time I saw Kenny in person too, right? Yep. We were so much younger then. Times have changed. Um, yeah, but no, on a personal note, having him as a guest also means um, something special to me as a fellow Asian composer too. So yeah, that was a good episode. I liked um, you know, Daniel Pemberton thanking the healthcare workers during the show yeah, and showing show, off like the cool. bottle thing that he sampled. Um, I, I think um, also one of my favorites is uh, Patrick Doyle, like learning that he cameoed in Chariots of Fire was so hilarious. And he like just the way he tells the story <laughs> was like the best. Um, 
Yeah, but my, some of my favorite stories actually are from behind the scenes, like just between us. Probably can't share most of them, but yeah, we have a lot of inside jokes. <laughs> oh, we have a lot of inside jokes, just like, and also like figuring out how to do the show remotely was also fun. Troubleshooting some tech issues and just prepping from the prepping for the episodes, just a lot of fun. And personally, for me, um, doing the medleys have been a lot of fun too. Like I'm not doing it oh, for. Those have been awesome. Yeah, I haven't. Like I'm not doing it for likes or people to like follow me but i'm just doing it for fun and and hopes to share it with other people who don't really know what film scoring is or you know the the joy of knowing the just how influential a soundtrack is for it mm, totally so yeah it's been great it's been a blast i'm emotional now <laughs> Not we need to cry, score this moment. Maybe after this, <laughs> it actually reminds me uh, all all the things you just reviewed of of exactly those composers and how great they were. Um, I had a a toss up for me. It was um, I actually really loved talking to Terrence Blanchard this year. I yeah, I just that whole week was kind of like a Terrence Blanchard graduate school where I listened to all of his scores and just ended up realizing how powerful uh, a composer he is and a musician. And he told a great story about after Katrina, Spike Lee coming to him to say, I need you. I need you to do this thing and work with me on a documentary. And it was very emotional to hear how, uh, it was about Terrence's neighborhood and the city he grew up in and how he just showed up. Um, I loved that. I also, I really loved our conversation with Ludwig. I just thought it was, you know, here's an exciting career exploding in front of us and a guy that was just super cool about everything. Oh yeah. So I did this, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. So he changed the world with this and with this and um, I just thought he was really a unique and is just a unique human being on the planet at this moment, um, very casually changing the world. And um, yep. even to hear him talk about his very first cue and how that was exciting for him and uh, how he's really listened to everything, pop music different instruments, plays stuff. I thought it was a very, very deep dive into a remarkable career. So I dug that too. Yeah. I, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll make mine brief because we want to get to Howard Shore here. But um, first off, Danny Elfman being as cool as he was, you know, sometimes you, you're set up to meet one of your heroes at, or somebody that you look up to uh, for that had a big impact on you. And it's a little intimidating. I wasn't sure what to, to make of him. And I was a little nervous and, not only did the interview go 20 minutes longer than we had on the books, but everything, he was just such a great, great storyteller, super friendly. And it, it made me appreciate him even more for someone to be at that level and just be that cool. And that goes to say for all of our guests, actually, I mean, everyone's been so cool this season. Um, but another thing that I thought was cool that we were able to do is, is kind of play. Um, Siddhartha Kosla playing some of his songs and learning about Goldspot, his band, the 
Siddhartha, the composer of This Is Us, who uh, started off as a studio or not a studio, uh, uh, an artist uh, in a band. And he was able to play some of his songs. And also Jim Johnston, the WWF WWE composer playing the Undertaker's theme. I mean, these are <laughs> things that it was like a, we had our own little concert. It was, it was like the Tonight Show. At the end of the show, we got to the little have a little music played. Um, but I think just overall, I love to hear the human struggles that the composers go to to get to where they are. So many people look at them and say, man, they're so great. I'll never get there. But when you break down the stories of where they began, they're all in the same boat, whether it's Blake Neely getting told no, or it's, you know, Alexander Desplat saying, man, John Williams is amazing. And then 20 years later, he's accepting an Oscar with John Williams in the audience. Like those are the, the moments to hear, to kind of show you that anyone can get there. And it's just, it's so great to be able to bring these stories to people every week. Um, so I hope you guys feel yep. that too, when we're presenting these uh, interviews to you, it's, we don't just want to hear what, uh, what piano did you use? What did you use here? I, I, we like to hear the stories of how they got there and, and the struggles and, and overcoming those. So that's uh, what stands out most to me. And also just working with you guys. It's, it's a joy Aww. every week to, to partner up and prep and all the prep and everything. So. Yeah. I wish I felt the same, but. Oh, come on now. Okay, Robert. <laughs> well, Bye. I have to keep, you know, brave. Bye, girl. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. And of Bye. course, <laughs> last but not least, the listeners. Just to, to, the, the social media and keeping in touch and seeing uh, all the humor and, and the responses uh, on social media brings a lot of joy to all of us. Uh, so thank you to everyone on the that's listening and uh, to everyone on our team. It's been such a great season. Brilliant. And season. now before I start crying, uh, <laughs> we're going to take a break. And then we have a whole episode ahead with uh, the three time Oscar winning living legend, Howard Shore. Oh, icon. Stick around. Blockbuster, the winner of Adweek's creative podcast of the year, returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James Cameron. What, me? No, 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 no. This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Danny Elfman, and you're listening to Score, the podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to this season finale episode of Score, the podcast. And we're in the presence of a legend in film music and music in general. So excited to have three-time Oscar-winning composer and just uh, an icon in film and music, Howard Shore joining the show today. Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you, sir? Very good. Nice to see you. Good to be here. Howard, it's great for me to see you. I was, I think it was the rabbit hole that started with trying to remember which film you and I worked on together, and it was fun to 
be reminded of that. What was it, Robert? The truth about cats and dogs. That's it, right? And the next, the next one we did was was uh, that thing you do. Tom Hanks, yeah. Did you end up on that thing you do because of this? Is a the math, the, all the math I could do on this because of a Jonathan Demi connection. Do you remember how you ended up doing that film? I knew I met Tom on Big. Of course, and uh, it's interesting because Big, you know, your opus is kind of divided into three periods. Even on your website, it's clear that there's the kind of the first decade, second decade, and then the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And Big certainly stands out in the first decade as a a big leap. I mean, I don't know if you knew that that film would be huge. And do you remember when you were first asked to score it? Did you have any trepidation? This is a, this is a big leap forward. Uh, no, actually it was a, it was kind of a struggle to get it uh, edited and on the screen. We didn't know uh, how wonderful it was until it was actually in front of audiences until we started screening it. We, Really didn't know how great that film was, but the year was 1986. It was the same year uh, that I scored Cronenberg's *The Fly* and Scorsese's *After Hours*. Those three films came out within a few months of each other. <laughs> Talk about different scores. Yeah, I grew up in repertory theater, so it was not unusual for me to do comedy one night and try. Tragedy the next. Big After Hours and The Fly. That sort of says it all. Yeah. My interest was in music. So I looked, films was a way to kind of expand my ideas. I was interested in the recording studio. And so trying different scores allowed me different type of expression, which is what I was really interested in. And you did eight albums with the band Lighthouse. But at what point did you want to take the full dive and say, I'm not going to be in a rock star in a band anymore. I want to go into film. Was that was that on your mind or was this just an experiment that turned into a career? Well, I did I was on the road with Lighthouse for 4 years, 69 to 72, and we did 251 night gigs a year. I did over a thousand one-nighters and by 72 I came off the road. I had my own group and I was writing for radio and te- then eventually television through CBC, Canadian Broadcasting. Right. And I think that was your relationship with Lorne Michaels that brought you to CBC? Right. Well, no, Lorne and I were friends from summer, from yep. summer camp. We did mm-hmm. shows together. Uh, we directed each other in various productions. We acted together. And, uh, you know, we grew up in, in the neighborhood. I saw that, and I actually, uh, there are a couple summer camps near Toronto that are sort of famous, and it was wonderful to see that a friendship that started as young teenagers yeah. really blossomed into, well, it just continued to be amazing. I mean, that Saturday Night Live stuff is fantastic. Lenny Pickett playing those super cool mm-hmm. themes, and then I wonder if... Uh, The Scorsese relationship, I've been thinking about that because as I looked through some of those films all the way up to The Departed and Gangs of New York, Scorsese is often known for using just source and Robbie Robertson dropping 
songs in and even trying to look for the soundtracks of those films, you get song soundtracks. Um, was there a reason you think that he used original score on some of those films and not as much source? Uh, yeah, I met Marty uh, through David Cronenberg. He, Marty liked Cronenberg's films. Hmm. And David came to New York from Toronto, and the three of us had dinner at Marty's house, and that's when I first met him. But then coincidentally, I had a studio in the Brill Building, and Marty would edit in the Brill Building. So we would meet each other eventually, and I got to know Thelma's editor. And on After Hours, I think he had used a lot of source music, but he was missing a thread. So he mm. thought a compositional idea, that you know, thematic idea. When I worked with Marty, was mostly providing thematic, uh, connective uh, ways to to edit the you know edit the film with the music. It was a way to add another element that he couldn't find from his uh, recordings. Did he actually wander down the hallway in the Brill Building and hear you, or did he ask Cronenberg? And I ask because I know a story of someone wandering down a hallway and hearing somebody. Yeah. Well, actually, I met Griffin Dunn. In yep. the, Griffin Dunn, who was the star of After Hours, was in the building. And for some I, I don't know how where I met him, but I knew Griffin. Mm-hmm. And I had this electronic type of studio uh, in the Brill Building with a Sinclair. Oh, I was, fabulous! I was really in there, uh, you know, in this room by myself, and I was doing all these electronic uh, pieces. And uh, it was like a lab. I was borrowing electronic equipment and plugging things in and reversing, you know. Uh, uh, machines and polarities and stuff and I was doing a lot of things electronically in there uh, that I was interested in and Griffin knew about that and so After Hours connected to that very well I recorded After Hours in that room it was, a, it was a, in a mono uh, Studer machine that I had uh, with the Sinclair and it's just using delays and I would reverse things and you know it was a way that to create that after hour soundtrack was had its own unique sound to it. I think the irony of that is that any one of these moments in your career could have led down the path of Howard Shore becomes exclusively the guy you go to for electronic scores. And yet well, we talk a lot about pigeonholing on this show and like, you know, there's the, someone gets into the comedy circle and they, they get stuck there. But if you look at your body of work, you've done horror, you've done thriller, you've done comedy. How do you not get pigeonholed? I just went for the you know opportunities uh, that I had, and uh, people offered me different scores. I mean, it was like big uh, after hours, The Fly, and so they have you know the The Fly was the fourth movie of Cronenberg, the first of Scorsese, first with Penny Marshall, and they came about through various different ways. They didn't come about through because of one particular score. I, it's interesting. I'm going to just read and just sort of enjoy the diversity of these titles because they're really fun to think about. Silence of the Lambs, epic, scary movie. Shortly thereafter, Mrs. Doubtfire, 
with naked lunch in the middle. So you're already kind of covering territory. Oh, by the way, then Philadelphia, which is kind of emotional type, emotional Everest of a score. Mm, beautiful movie. Up to seven. I think we'll just throw in, analyze this. One of the funniest movies ever made. Howard, you're just, you know, it's like somebody says, Howard Shore stepping up to the plate and the entire outfield backs up right to the wall because these movies are magnificent, but the scores, as I listen through them. As I said, the, the interest was always in music. So opportunities in music, they're different because of the interest in that actual uh, part of filmmaking. You talked a little bit about how you met Tom Hanks through Big. So when you're working on a film, do you get involved with the actors? Do you like to visit the sets or do you stay in your studio and just get the cuts and, and do the work from the studio? Uh, it depends. I think on Big, I was quite involved. I mean, I was on set when they did the Robert Loge and the uh, Big uh, scene with... You may win me a bet. We looked at that together, all of us, and thought, well... You know, he could have done the heart and soul and chopsticks. What happened? Um, the studio would call me and they'd say, you need to be on set tomorrow <laughs> to do this scene. And so I was kind of fairly new in the world of, uh, you know, film production in Hollywood. And so I'd show up. So I went to FAO Schwartz. We also did a scene... A uh, birthday scene that was actually cut from the film, uh, not the scene, but the, I wrote a piece. The studio called me and they said, uh, they're shooting a birthday scene at Asti's restaurant with Singing Waiters. It was a very famous restaurant in New York where the, the, uh, the Italian waiters singing. sang opera. And they said, can you show up tomorrow, teach the waiters a new birthday song? Because we don't want to use pay for happy birthday. <laughs> And I said, uh, you know, I didn't know. I said, oh, okay, yeah, fine. They called me at about 8 o'clock at night. Well, I wrote the piece, and I showed up at, the, uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning at the restaurant to teach the waiters, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, like an Italian opera version <laughs> of happy birthday, where they come out with plates of food. And they shot it. But it didn't end up in the movie. Eventually, they decided the movie was going to be successful, and they could pay for a happy birthday. Okay, so we had another we had another conversation about actors on set singing. So now that we've solved that one, <laughs> uh, of course, we we just hit the uh, you know the anniversary of of losing Robin Williams, and I went back and I watched Mrs. Doubtfire this week, yeah, and the yeah. the film starts off with him. Doing uh, Figaro, Figaro, the barber of Seville. Is that the. Yeah. Were you involved in that? Did you work with him at all on that? Or was that just something he. Well, he did. Do? He did that scene and he did. Chris Columbus directed it. And when I met with him, he showed me those scenes, uh, you know, the Figaro. And then he also does a Broadway medley when he's being turned into Mrs. Doubtfire. Right. That it has Streisand songs. It has like four or five different Broadway songs. And so Chris said, so uh, you'll replace all this music, you know? Uh, and I said, well, did you record anything to a click? He said, no. Robin improvised everything. 
<laughs> so there was no, there was no click, there was no tempos, anything. He just did it, and I built a track around it and recorded it and orchestrated it. And yeah, Jeff Admaji and did some beautiful work oh, too on the Broadway melody on the Broadway stuff. Can you tell us what it's like working with Robin Williams? It seems like seeing his raw cuts of of scenes is like unlike any other. I mean, they're, they're yeah. got to be completely off script a lot of the time. Well, I knew him from the show, from Saturday Night Live. You know, there was a group of us that would go out to dinner and things like that. There were social things where I had met Robin in New York. But I didn't, uh, I didn't work with him on uh, Mrs. Doubtfire until post. And then I had to match everything to his improvised takes tricky there's something historic about that um figaro start uh which is they don't have the 20th century fox logo they don't have a fanfare at the beginning of the movie they have your figaro starting over the logo and i thought i don't remember that you must have been really important um, because they don't <laughs> allow that. So you had to underscore Robin's improvisation, basically, to yeah. get that to work. Incredible. That he didn't sing in any key or you know, he didn't use any pitch. There was no piano on set. He just improvised it in his own amazing way. Were you a musician on Saturday Night Live? I don't know that. I know that you wrote some music. Were you actually part of the band at any point? I was the music director I, for it, the first five years. You were and and um, I saw that on one of the scores recently, and you're going to have to remind me, G.E. Smith collaborate. Is it The Departed? Uh, G.E. Smith uh, came into an audition for Gilda's show on Broadway called Gilda Live, and I hired him on a cold audition to play in the band yeah. uh, on this Broadway show. And so I knew him and developed a friendship with him over the years. And when we got to The Departed, I was using three, uh, Scorsese's movie, The Departed, mm-hmm. uh, I was using three, uh, three or four different guitars. Mark Rebo, Sharon Isman, uh, uh, Saltzman, yeah, and GE. Mm. So, so GE was a principal guitarist in the, on the score. I think he did. He take the gig after you, as yes. l- leader of the band. Well, I recommended him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I did great. the first five years. Seven, I did uh, seventy-five to eighty, one hundred and three live broadcasts, and then we left for a few years. And then I came back in eighty-five, uh, just to help Lorne. I was more of a consultant. I was just helping him to recreate uh, the music on the show and establish a new band and a new music director and that's when GE came in. I recommended him for What's it like being a part of that family? It seems like once you're a part of it, you even if you go off and do something, you're always welcomed back and you seem to have a lot of threads that lead back to SNL. How important was that for your career working with that team? Uh well it brought it actually brought me to New York. Hmm. Uh, I was living in Toronto. I kept my my flat in Toronto uh, because I th- thought, you know, when usually when you come to to New York to do a show like that, you think it might last three or four months. Yeah. So I kept 
my apartment, uh, you know, for a few years. The show's been on 45 years. Yeah, they're doing all right. Or 47 now. I mean, it's it's really up there. But I mean, you, um, you ended up writing Conan O'Brien's theme. Was that related to the connection with SNL? Well, well? with yeah, because it, it was all NBC and, you know, I was part of that family for a while. Yeah. And yeah. the, the um, it's interesting. I'm thinking about other scores of yours and uh, the use of the theremin in Ed Wood kind of right. combines electronics and orchestra. Yes. And great callback. Um, who was the was there a theremin player that you knew that you could call and say bring yes. in your ex? Uh, Stephen D. Martin uh, did a documentary if you're interested on the theremin uh, called An Electronic Odyssey, and through him I met Lydia Cavina, who was a relative of Leon Theremin, the inventor of the instrument in Moscow in 1920. And so I contacted her. She was working with, actually, with Tom Waits in Hamburg, and I brought her to London. And uh, and that was also an interesting time when I you could call the music department in the studio and say, I need to bring a, mus- a musician from Hamburg to London. They went, okay, it's okay, <laughs> we'll do it. And they they we managed to get her a visa through a lot of diplomatic maneuvering, we brought her uh, to London. And Tim Burton loved her and, you know, shot little eight millimeter movies of her playing. And he, he loved Lydia. And also, Lydia also played on Existence, Cronenberg mm. film. Yeah. Uh, so I became really interested in this instrument. And my relationship with Lydia has extended over years. We've done concerts together many times. Did the theremin, just out of curiosity, when you have a theremin on a score, does the theremin play with the orchestra or is it an overdub? Well, you can do that. I used, uh, while I was waiting for the diplomat, the visas to come through, um, I recorded uh, with an own smart no with Cynthia Miller. and She recorded live uh, with the orchestra. And uh, and then when Lydia arrived, I did some overdubbing with her, and uh, and put the theremin in strategic places in the film. Yeah, it's great, and it's it's a score that's both a throwback and utterly contemporary, which may be which may be your style. I mean, I listened to a number of scores, and I was kind of surprised how it sounds so silly and obvious, but. It, you're very brave with dissonance. Mm-hmm. I mean, really remarkably out there putting things together. You think, ooh, that's uncomfortable, particularly in the Cronenberg pieces. Mm-hmm. Did a director ever come to you and say, that's too far away from consonant music <laughs> for me? Had, or do they just say, Howard Shore wrote it? We're good. Oh, I've, I think I've heard everything over the- <laughs> every type of comment over the years. But the Cronenberg is really the backbone of all my uh, scoring in films. I mean, you could go back to different Cronenberg films over 50, there's, I think there's 15 of them. And they led me in different directions, you know, like uh, the early ones, the Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, uh, were mostly electronic. The Brood was all uh, strings, 21 piece string group 
recorded it in six hours. It was like very, the whole score was done, you know, in one or two takes. We had no budget or anything. We just went as fast as we could to try to, you know, get the job. Those movies were made on a shoestring, those early films. And then The Fly used the London Philharmonic. And the London Philharmonic was an orchestra that I uh, became, uh, so, you know, associated with. And I did many scores with them, maybe 15 or 20 scores, which led up to Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings was recorded for them. And it was orchestrated exactly for them. But I had had the 15 years of experience wow. leading up to it, which started on the fly. A lot of composers that we talk to talk about that moment, the first time an orchestra played their music in front of them. Was it the fly for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was uh, working with uh, Homer Dennison, who was quite a bit older than me at the time, and he orchestrated it and t taught me a bit about orchestration along the way as I worked with them. And eventually I started just orchestrating my scores myself, but Homer kind of guided me for a few years. He orchestrated that and also did Dead Ringers and M. Butterflies, some of the really cool Cronenberg things. And he was really good with big bands as well. He did the big band scene in... Uh, uh, music in uh, Analyze This, actually. That's <laughs> mm. so and great. Then, yeah, Homer died he, much too young, really. And then I just continued orchestrating my scores. It was easier for me to orchestrate and to conduct because I was conducting everything at that point. And so if I had written the orchestration, it was just faster for me on the podium uh, to do, you know, to get the, the, the recordings that I wanted. Do you remember that moment, though, when you first heard your music played? When I heard The Fly, yeah, I was in Barnes. Uh, it was at Olympic Studios in Barnes, and yeah, it was fabulous. I'm actually curious about that. We may uh, get to it after the break, but I remember once being in either Abbey Road or Air Lindhurst, and we couldn't get some player or some engineer or something because... Howard Shore was in town recording Lord of the Rings, but you right. weren't recording, if I remember correctly, in a conventional studio. You had gone, yeah. somebody told me that you had gone to a town hall. Am I remembering anything right. correctly? No, here? that's correct. And tell us about that. Well, that's an interesting story because what I was doing, and I've kind of done this all through uh, my film music uh, work, whereas I tried to match the recording, the venue uh, with the performers for each project I was doing. Like for, without uh, going too far off, like with, with the score to uh, Aviator, uh, Scorsese's Aviator, it's, the movie is set around the time of uh, silent film going into talkies around 1930 in that period. So I was looking for the sound of early Hollywood, hmm. which is actually hard to find. And I went to a small town in Belgium called Leuven, Leuven, Belgium, recorded with the Flemish radio orchestra that had that sound. It's a West German orchestra, and they had this kind of sound that you might have heard of uh, European immigrants in Hollywood in 1930. Hmm. That was the aviator. So... 
we're now talking about Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, the first recording, uh, started in Wellington. And Peter called me one, one night early on in the process. Like, I think it was still like February, uh, the year of the release of the film. And he said, we want to take the film to the Cannes Film Festival. In May. Uh, and in May, he called me in February. He said, "Can you write the Minds of Moria, which was a 26-minute piece in the middle of the film? We're going to want to show that film, and can you record it in New Zealand?" Hmm. I had never recorded in New Zealand. Well, I wrote the piece. I went to New Zealand. I recorded it in uh, Wellington Town Hall with the New Zealand uh, Symphony Orchestra and a chorus of. Uh, uh, an all-male chorus singing in Dwarvish. And uh, the orchestra and the town hall had a particular sound. This was a 19th century, uh, actually probably like a turn of the century town hall. They, they were built, built in 1910 by the government. Now I grew up in Canada and I became, uh, you know, a U.S. citizen later. But I mean, through my Canadian roots, I, you have to understand the Commonwealth that in England and in Canada, in New Zealand, they're all connected to Eng, English uh, social work. So all over the Commonwealth, these buildings, these town halls would be built. They're usually two-story structures with a, with a gallery, and you could do concerts there and bingo and dances and, you know. Uh, we were like for the community. You could do political events, that kind of thing. And they're all wood. They're very, you know, beautiful sounding. Wood floor, wood balcony, you know, 1910 structure. So the one I record, the only place to record in Wellington was this building. And I mixed it in one of their studios. That's a whole other story. The mix was done at a film studio. And so now I wanted to recreate this sound in England. So I looked for a similar building. Oh. And in Watford, uh, outside of London, is a town hall that is almost a duplicate match of the one in Wellington, New Zealand. Did you use like a film scout to find that? That seems like a challenge in its own. Trying to Oh, find I go way out of my way to find <laughs> the studio and the players. Yeah, so I, I found that building. And they brought uh, equipment in. We set up a recording room upstairs. We brought equipment in from Abbey Road. And so from that building, I was able to actually duplicate the sound of the recording in Watford. I mean, in Watford, I could duplicate the sound of the recording in Wellington Town Hall in New Zealand, which was 9,000 miles away. Any pushback from the fine orchestra players of London, England to drive. I don't know how far Watford is. But about an hour. So you had to get it. It was a big band. It was 90 players. 96. 96 players out to Watford. And you answered my other question, which is how did you record? Did you roll a truck up, but you actually put in the gear? We built a little room upstairs. We put the gear in. Eventually, we did so much recording in Watford uh, that we actually installed a whole control room upstairs. But in the beginning, it was just we just brought in machines and set it up without a lot of insulation. 
I thought you were going to say you did so much recording in Watford, they just made you the mayor of Watford. <laughs> well, actually, you know, because it was a public building, uh, they would kick us out on the weekend. You know, they'd, ha- they'd have a dance or bingo <laughs> or something. on the. They'd say, you have to get out now. It's Friday. Oh, you say it's Lord of the Rings. We're trying to record that. Can I come back on Monday? So we had to follow their schedule. Well, of course, we want to talk more about Lord of the Rings. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to dive in uh, more with Howard Shore when we return. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, my name is Hildur Guðnadóttir and you're listening to Score the Podcast. Let's go back to the show. Welcome back to this season finale of Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Howard Short. Howard, I don't know if you remember this, but when we uh, sat down for the interview for our documentary, we uh, drove out to your art studio and um, there was a band across the street playing a farmer's market and we had to go pay him a hundred bucks to stop playing for like 45 right. minutes so we could talk. Yeah, to I remember him. that. It was really echoey. Are you a big art collector? Well, my daughter uh, is a, a master printer and an mm. artist. Her husband's an artist and a printer as well. So there's a lot of art. Uh, going on and and my wife Elizabeth is a real collector. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah. I mean the the studio was beautiful. Um, w- so we were talking about uh, Lord of the Rings, and there's no question about it that this this series of films is so heavy on musical storytelling. I mean, there's so many characters, there's so many worlds, and the music really drives home a lot of the stories um, for the audience, whether they're aware of it or not. I'm curious, when you come on board for that project, did you sign up for all three? Did you know what was ahead so you could weave the themes together throughout the films? Or did you just start with one? I mean, how do you sit down and say, all right, I'm I'm stepping into a massive, I mean, just a three-hour movie alone is a lot of music to write. But when you know that there's three parts of it. Uh, Peter called me. It was just a cold call. I picked up the phone one day. He said, it's Peter Jackson. And I talked to him. I didn't know anything about the film. Mm -hmm. And um, I had read the book. 
the book Lord of the Rings years ago when I was on the road with, with Lighthouse touring, uh, like a lot of people did in the 60s. But I went down to New Zealand and it sounded intriguing. So I took a flight down and he showed me what was going on. It was amazing. I mean, the level of filmmaking, the craftsmanship that was going into the film was phenomenal. And I met uh, Richard Taylor and uh, John Howe, the the great uh, illustrator, uh, Alan Lee, the illustrator. They showed me all their conceptual drawings for the film. I visited the workshop of... uh, of Weta, where they were building all the swords and armor and costumes, everything from scratch. I mean, it was phenomenal. Hmm. And so you wanted to be a part of it. You didn't want to get back on the plane and say no. So, you you know, you said, yeah, no, it looks great. I really would love to do this. But you really didn't know what you were really taking on. It just was so intriguing a project. You wanted to be part of it. And, uh, the thing I did with it was, which I do on every film that I work on, and I did about four months, four to six months of research before I even wrote a note. I had to understand ring mythology. I mean, I had to reread the book, read other books that were connected to Tolkien, the influences that he had on the culture. And I had to understand everything I could about it and then put it all away and then dream and nap and think about what the Shire music should be and what the fellowship theme should be. And those came pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, once I get comfortable enough with it intellectually, I put that away and I just react emotionally to it. And that's where the source of the music comes from. The ideas come from an emotional language about the, film it's very nice to hear you say quite casually and those came pretty fast you know the fellowship theme which turns out to be a universal piece of music with incredible melodic resonance human resonance in in those notes and yeah um i mean it's just that's a process i think we all are mystified by which is how does a melody like that show up in your hands, in your mind, in your heart? Where does that, and when does that happen to an artist? I think it happens when you're comfortable with it, uh, with the not, the, in, the intellect, you know, as I was saying, you're just comfortable with the intellectual part. And now you're really just asking yourself, what do I have to contribute? How do I feel about this? What's my I, impression of the Shire or the Fellowship? And then the ideas, you know, they flow. But when they presented that to you, did you know that you were on board for the whole ride or were you just taking it one step at a time? Because you you, yeah. you definitely planted seeds uh, musically in the first film to, yeah. you know, show up later. And it, that may have been a challenge for someone to pick up on if they if yeah. it wasn't you all the way through. No, it was. I was there for the all three films and uh everything really hinged on that first film, but we were setting, it was so vast a project really. I mean, it's, it took me uh, almost four years to write. It was an hour, uh, um, one year for each film. Plus we did an extended version of three months. So it was three years and three and nine months in total 
for the whole project and uh and took you know that that amount of time but as i was writing i was keeping a notebook and peter and i worked really closely together and when i did a concert at uh, radio city music hall i think a fellowship of the ring in new york i brought a tolkien's archive from marquette university in wisconsin to a library on the west side of manhattan and yeah, i could you know, the public was it was open to the public, but if you studied Tolkien's uh, w- original work and his ideas, he was also following phases of the moon. He was trying to understand the story. It was so complicated that he was trying to set it down and and you know follow the different th- threads of it, especially something like Two Towers, where everything starts dividing and going off in different directions. When you say that you and Peter work closely together, first of yeah. all, you're on different continents, I assume, yeah. and in vastly different time zones. And some of this was done just yeah, there slight- was no Zoom. <laughs> yeah, just slightly before Zoom and and great Wi-Fi and that in itself. Yeah, when I first went to New Zealand, they had 56k dial-up. Nice. You hear that funny sound and the, yeah, and the that was the beginning, the first year. But when you was worked on that, does he show you picture and you write to it? Do you show him music and he gives you a vibe? What was the working relationship like for you to develop all that music? We would just take parts of the story, you know, a section at a time. And I mentioned the Tolkien uh, archive because Tolkien was just putting one foot in front of the other as he wrote the story. And we were doing the same thing, you know, and I, I use the analogy of holding up a lantern in the dark. Like, you know, we'd get lost and then I'd, I'd hold the lantern up and I'd say, Peter, this way. And then he'd hold it and he'd say, <laughs> you know, off to the left. And so we kind of went through the story scene by scene like that. Mm. And just, you know, worked out the details of it in, in, uh, in a lot of, actually in a lot of detail. And even though we were so far away, we worked, I went to New Zealand quite often, um, and we worked on the internet. Hmm. You know, we were able to sit, I was able to sit him to send him demos and he could comment on them. He could see them to picture. Hmm. Sometimes they were very simple, but it was a way for him to, uh, react to it. And you got to remember that this period in my life was interesting. It was an interesting period because I was, I had done a lot of movies at this point. I'm not sure how many, I mean, maybe, maybe 60 films. I'm looking. I mean, I was very experienced, maybe even more than that. Yeah. So I was very experienced in a way with film, uh, you know, and how to use music and film. But my back, a lot of my background was with Cronenberg, which was not to, to be telling the audience hardly anything. I mean, it was, uh, you know, working around the sides of the screen and, and the subtext and, and not really uh, trying to tell the, you know, the clarity of the story was not what we did in David's films when working with David's films. Uh, now, but here with Lord of the Rings, the most one of the most complex fantasy worlds probably ever created. Maybe people hadn't seen, uh, hadn't read the book, who were seeing the film. Who are these people? How do they differ? How, wh- how, why are these elves different than 
the Lothlorien elves and the Rivendell elves, or these men are different than these men. So the music became thematic as a way to express clarity to tell the story. So that became the overriding way. But using themes and motifs in Lord of the Rings, there's over a hundred of them. I hardly did that, use that technique up until that particular uh, writing. But I realized early on that you had to tell the clear, you had to focus on the clarity of the storytelling. That's so interesting that you had no real thematic experience, and then you do the arguably the biggest series right. of themes. <laughs> like not only it wasn't so much that I didn't have the experience, but it was like I avoided it. Because <laughs> look at you know look at movies like you know Videodrome or. Uh, existence you know they were kind of a, were, were kind of avoiding a, a lot of you know the when you think of thematic ideas like expressing themes to the you know and the storytelling it's a different way of telling the story in some ways it makes you wonder what peter jackson listened to that day he made the cold call he listened to a lot of Cronenberg stuff i can tell you that and did he so say he must have found certain things or he said i want Hi, Howard. It's Peter Jackson. I want the exact opposite for the next. <laughs> no, 12. no. I think they found they found certain things. I mean, they were using a lot of my music, I think, and didn't quite realize it at the time. They were just pulling things. And then when they started screening the film, they went, hmm, there's a lot of this guy's music in the film. It's working really well. Why don't we give him a ring? And that's really how it. Give uh, him a received. ring, I think, is. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call him up and see if he wants to talk about it. How grateful are you that you got the time that you did? We hear so many horror stories about composers getting, you know, two months to write a score, but this is clearly something that needed a lot of time and research. And yeah, was that a requirement when you're for everybody? I mean, not just the music, but the, the filmmaking in general it took a lot of time. But did you request a certain amount of time to be able to really give it what you wanted to give it for Lord of the Rings? No, the, the time factor was uh, the element that was most crushing because you were always facing the clock. Uh, the budget was great. You could do pretty much everything you wanted to achieve creatively. Uh, if a scene, ch the editing of a scene changed and you had already recorded it, and, you know, with a whole full orchestra and you could significantly uh, make a difference in, uh, in, in improving it, you could go back and re-record it. And, and there was, you know, our goal was to make the best possible films we could of these books, of Tolkien's books. And everybody was behind it from Bob Shea, who was running New Line at the time and Brusek. I mean, everybody was just wanted to make the greatest movies we could make. Uh, so the clock was the only uh, real problem, you know, because you were always facing the clock. And you had to – and uh, the, the scoring went on. Like I would probably recorded four days a week, and I was orchestrating it myself. So it was continuous. I mean, Fellowship uh, – uh, Return of the King probably was four or five months of recording. In the town hall in Watford? Uh, a lot of it in Watford. And then we, we could use Abbey Road to sound like Watford. 
which sounded like Wellington Town Hall. <laughs> and we could even go to, we had such a great engineer uh, doing it, John Curlander, that he could even make rooms like uh, Air Studios sound like Abbey Road, we sounded like Watford, you know. He was the one who kept all the mic distances and, you know, he was a master engineer, uh, a Curlander, you, from Abbey Road. Actually. You just reminded me why I knew about Watford. Because I yeah. wanted Curlander to record something, and he was unavailable because he was at the Watford Town Hall with Howard right. Shore. Just so odd. Yeah. yeah, of course, Curlander was 17 years old as a second or third engineer with the Beatles. Right. On a, yeah, he was there for the uh, recordings. I think he ran the tape machine. Yeah. So, but then he became a classical engineer at EMI for years, and you know, be, I brought him into movies. I think on the film uh, M. Butterfly. Because hmm. I remember him first coming to Los Angeles and I was introduced to him and he, he was wonderful. What a great, yeah. great engineer. Yeah. Howard, what's the feeling like when you finish the trilogy, knowing the time and, and the amount of you know your, your life spent and just blood, sweat, tears, all that stuff, you finish, you wake up the next morning like, are you happy you're done or are you itching to get back in? Like, that must have been a big toll on your life. Yeah. They had to drag me away from it, actually. Wow. I mean, because I wrote so much music and I was writing it every day that it just became part of my life. And, you know, they had to, like, pull me, pull you away from it and say, it's okay, we can, we can leave it now. We're going to shut the light off. Uh, because I was still very energized, even more at the beginning than I was because I had the whole background of the piece uh, behind me. And because Fellowship of the Ring was successful, it actually boosted you, you know, to take those that piece and create Two Towers and Return of the King. But also the bar just kept getting higher because you went from uh, – Fellowship to Two Towers to Return of the King. Each one is actually improving and getting better and becoming even bigger productions. Do you, if you're skipping around on TV, do you stop and watch them, or are you so tired of seeing? Yeah, them? no, no, <laughs> um, no. I'll watch. I'll watch a bit of them, and we do a lot of live to projection concerts. At least we used to, you know, before this thing but uh you know so i've seen them in concert uh it was beautiful to watch them at uh royal albert hall mm. on a big screen with all the original uh performers from the score the london philharmonic the london voices it was really magical i bet are you someone that needs a deadline you said that they had to pull you away. If you didn't yeah. have a deadline, would you keep tweaking and writing until your hands fall off? I probably would have kept going, yeah. I mean, I just wrote every, you know, I wrote so much music that they'd have to take it out in hand carts because I write everything in paper. You know, I, I write like in uh, sketches, four or six line sketches, and then I do the orchestration in ink in 30 staves. I actually watched a, I watched a video of you um, orchestrating somewhere, and I thought he's not using a pencil. That's scary. Yeah. I also was very impressed. I must admit, and envious of your penmanship. Your your notation penmanship was yeah. very clear 
You know, I started writing counterpoint when I was nine years old with a pencil. I was taught to, to, to write it and it had to be neat. And I've been doing that. You know, I had a very good teacher, uh, Morris Weinzweig, who was John Weinzweig, the composer, John Weinzweig's brother, a very famous Canadian composer. He taught me how to write. So I just carried on. It's like, uh, just keep the pencil moving. Did he ever have the opportunity to see the fruits of his labor and go to a film of yours? Did he live long enough to see your no, career? No, no, no. He was kind of uh, elder, elderly when I knew him as a teacher. So he never really got to see any of this work. Yeah. Has your process changed at all, Howard, over the years? You, you started writing by hand, but do you... Do you dive into these computer programs or are you still old school writing it down? Always? I do both. I have a studio that's very high tech that allows me to communicate uh, with New Zealand. I can do sessions in London. Um, I've got a beautiful surround room. I've got a room for mastering, hmm. a room for electronics. So I've got a very high tech part of it but all of the composition is done 19th century it's all done pencil and paper but once the pencil and paper is created then it goes into uh you know digital world any temptation to leave your fabulous new york location and live in los angeles uh well i love los angeles and i've been going to california since i was since the 60s and used to do gigs out there. We played at Fillmore West and Winterland, Ooh. and we played in L.A., you know. So, I mean, I really like it, and I visit all the time. But I think with Lauren and Saturday Night Live, I got based in New York, you mm -hmm. know, because I did the show for five years, and then I, you know, kind of settled here with the family and, you know, became the base. So I, I didn't feel the need to move. And, my connection to Tolkien was very much through nature and I live in an Oak forest. And so it allowed me a real connection to the beauty of nature. And I think that helped my writing. We've restored gardens here. And as the gardens improved, I noticed the music improved. Huh. <laughs> I know you've written, I know you've written as with gardens as a theme. Isn't there a, con yes. is it a concerto that you wrote? Yes, uh, I think that's the uh, – well, I just finished a uh, guitar concerto called The Forest. Hmm. And the cello concerto is a reflection of three Italian gardens. Wow, Vincent yeah. Contini's. Yeah. Um, will those be performed after we're out of this crisis, or have they already been performed? Well, they're on rec there's, there's recordings of the piano concerto mm -hmm. with Long Long and Sophie Chow did the cello concerto. They're on it. They're, they have been released. And the guitar concerto is, uh, from, uh, a guitarist, Montenegrin guitarist, wonderful, incredible musician named Milos. Mm. And that's coming out on DECA, I guess, once we, uh, progress a little further into the year, maybe by the end of the year. And so is that is that sort of where you feel your work going or like everything else you don't decide it's what's next is it going away from film music to absolute music or yeah well i've just finished two films 
Well, uh, in the last few months, unbelievable. I've been on, last three, four months, I did two films. Uh, one called Funny Boy with uh, Deepa Mehta, hmm. a beautiful film mm-hmm. uh, that'll come out next year. It's set in Colombo, uh, Sri Lanka. And and then I did a, another film with uh, Cornell Mandrusko and a very eminent Hungarian director called Pieces of a Woman that's premiering at the Venice Film Festival in a few weeks. They're just mixing it now. So wow. I've actually been recording all over the world. Like in, uh, I've been doing recordings in uh, Berlin and London, uh, Washington, Switzerland. It's really wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. I kind of imagine somebody saying there's a composer here who's looking for a town hall in Berlin. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. I've been recording in uh, Teldeck in Berlin. I can go to places that I know that I've worked in. And so I understand the acoustic and then I can do remote recordings. It's interesting. You're more interested in the acoustic than the quality of the orchestra. So many people go and freak out because they don't have a film music orchestra that can read fast and make changes but i've never heard someone be that specific about the actual venue which is really well it's very important to me yeah because as an or as when you're orchestrating music for orchestra you have to understand the acoustic it's part of the orchestration is the acoustic the placement of the microphones and so i know the orchestras very well like in berlin i know the musicians very well because i've done so many recordings there and it's the same in London. It's like I know, you know, so I know the musicians so well, so I can do remote recordings, and I know the I know the the uh, the studio, and that way I can gauge, you know, what I'm hearing to what it, you know, what's being recorded. You've you've done so many big movies, different types of movies. At this point, what makes you decide to take a film? I mean. You, I'm sure there's a lot of people saying, I'd love to have Howard Shore score my film, but what what draws you to say, yes, I want to score this film? Uh, for me, very important, the d- director relationship, so that you can have a good collaboration with the director. So if somebody a- asks me about it, I'll try to uh, do the research on the director, just you know, make sure that I feel it's going to be a good collaboration from their previous work and through conversations that we might have about it and their expectations. But that relationship to me is a central because, uh, you know, film, the, filmmaking is essentially a director's art form. So the, the composer has to have this really common goal type of relationship with the director to, to make it successful. And if you feel you can do that, then I do it. And then, you know, and then I think about, you know, trying to do the best score I can for each project. You're one of the few rare human beings on earth where you could walk up to the average human and they've probably heard something you've written. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) Between Saturday Night Live to Mrs. Doubtfire to Lord of the Rings and, and your artist career. I mean, there's not a lot of people on earth that haven't heard one of those. It's covered some ground. I guess it has. Well, I'd yes. love to have somebody meet you. And instead of all those uh, that Kenny just ran off, say, are you the guy in Lighthouse? <laughs> you never... Oh, and by the way, Elton John opened for you. That's 
Just, just. And we all know from reading that you actually were on the same bill as Jimi Hendrix. Well, we opened for Hendrix. You opened for Hendrix. I, I think you could probably just say I opened for Hendrix, and that in itself (laughs) would be a career. Would be amazing. We opened for Miles Davis the next night. Oh my God! Between the two of them, it's just a wonderful career. It's such a beautiful career. And Howard, what fun! to be able to reconnect after all these years and yeah and just hear about this i mean i could never have imagined um when we first worked together and i even remember where we were in capital we didn't record at the fox studios for some reason right you wanted maybe it was your early instinct about going to the right room for the truth about cats and dogs capital was perfect for it because it had those two rooms that you could join correct and I and the score was had kind of a jazz feel to it. Absolutely. So I could put the soloists in one room and the or- the strings and the orchestra in the other. Yeah, there's a small orchestra. So that gave and they'd done so many classic recordings there, jazz recordings. The best Sinatra and Nat King Cole and yeah. everybody else. So who knew at that moment uh, where this would go and that you would end up being the Howard Shore we know and love today. And and our special guest for this season finale. We can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And we didn't even have to pay a band across the street to stop playing for this interview. So that's so nice. You guys realize that was the lighthouse of the 21st century across the street. You could have had your moment there to go back. Well, Howard, just a right. treat. And a reminder to our listeners, uh, you can follow us on social media to keep up with the show at Score the Podcast on Twitter, Score Movie on Instagram, and Score a Film Music Documentary on Facebook. Uh, thank you so much for uh, such a great season for all our listeners, for Robert and uh, composer Carol and, and everyone behind the scenes. Thank you for listening to this season. And again, Howard Shore, a living legend. Composer Carol is here with us today. He's a big fan, and Kenny and myself. And for everybody from Score the Podcast, we want to say thanks, Howard Shore for joining us for this season and this episode. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks, Carol. Good being with you. Wow. Great episode. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) Oh, hi. I'm Robert. Um, (laughs) score listeners. We are so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio, not only for this particular episode, but for our entire season. Spitfire collaborates with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. Yeah, and as an exclusive to you, our listeners, Spitfire, of course, is offering 20% off your first order. So if you haven't ordered yet, get to it. These episodes will live on, but the promo code may not. It's score 2020, lowercase score 2020. It's good on over 50 of their libraries, and it's, again, exclusive to you. Send us a note on uh, Twitter, at score the podcast. Tell us what you bought, and uh, send us some of your cues. We want to check them out. Uh, We're going to play you a clip right now from the London Contemporary Orchestra Textures Package. Check it out.
All right, troops, that's it for us on this season three finale of Score the Podcast. If you love the show, if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend, uh, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, and tell people why they should check out the show. Uh, We've been lucky to be uh, pretty much in the top 200 uh, film and TV podcasts all season long, and we're also a featured show in the film interview section of Apple Podcasts. So people can sort of come up and and see us on the list, but your comments and your reviews help people get excited to check out the show. So we appreciate all of those reviews. And uh, for myself, for Matt, for Robert, for Carol, thank you so much for listening to this season of Score the Podcast. We'll see you soon. <laughs>